As I said earlier, this hymn, Christian, Dost Thou See Them, is one of the oldest hymns of the Christian Church, and through the centuries has been one of the favorites of many of the great men of God. And it is also one of my favorites. However, I can never sing it without recalling an amusing episode in connection with it. A good many years ago, over 30 years ago at least, a man who had served during the 1920s as a chaplain in a mental institution told me of his experience with the first chapel meeting he conducted. He chose this as one of his favorite hymns, and unfortunately, it is a dramatic hymn, and it had the wrong effect on some of the mental patients. Christian, dost thou see them? That is, the forces of Satan. And before they had gotten very far in the hymn, a number of the patients were hallucinating and practically climbing the walls. So he said for the duration of his chaplaincy there, he avoided this hymn. He almost got thrown out of the place after that chapel. Our scripture this morning is Second Chronicles 19, verses 4 through 7. And... A related passage, which we shall not read, but consider, Exodus 18, 13 to 26. Second Chronicles 19, verses 4 through 7. And our subject, Judges. And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again to the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed what you do, for ye judge not for man but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore, now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respective persons, nor taking of a gift. Very early in his career, Moses, as Exodus 18:13 to 26 makes clear, set up judges throughout all of Israel. At first, Moses himself had been the sole judge, but as Jethro, his father-in-law, pointed out, the work was too much for him. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee, for thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now to my voice, and I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And then Jethro went on to declare that he should establish a series of graded courts, which was done. What we would call a justice of the peace for every ten families, then 
district judges over them to hear appeals, and then other judges to hear appeals, with Moses then providing the final court of appeal. Moses had declared that the purpose of a judge was to make them know the statutes of God and his law. This, then, is the purpose of a judge. A judgeship is one of the most important of civil functions. The court cannot represent real justice in any society if the judge and his office are defective by nature and authority. For a social order to provide prosperity and stability, to provide peace, Certain things are necessary. First of all, it is necessary that all the people with grievances of a serious sort submit them to a court of law rather than taking the law into their own hands. If and when the citizenry take the law into their own hands, the consequences, of course, are anarchy. Now, the citizenry is important, the law of As we saw earlier in studying some of the laws of Scripture, the citizenry have the right of citizens' arrest. They are the basic police of society, and our modern concept of the police and the citizens' right of arrest comes directly from the Bible. Every free man without a criminal record, is a police officer, has the right of citizen's arrest. But the citizenry cannot identify themselves with law without destroying it, because law transcends the people. The law requires for judgment an agency which is immune partial and personal feelings. Second, a court of law and a judge must have the power of the state to enforce decrees or else anarchy prevails. Every decision by a judge is sure to displease at least one party. A court can never please everyone. It must, of necessity, render a decision which will displease one and very often will displease both parties. But the court's decisions must be protected. Appeals against the decision of a court must be made within the structure of courts, not outside the court or against the court. Third, a court must represent a transcendental concept of law and justice, that is, a standard above and beyond man. The whole idea of a court and of a judge implies transcendence, that is, God. What you are going to a court for is not 
man's idea of what should be done. Not the idea of a party or a group or a class. It isn't Republican justice or Democratic justice or Marxist justice or fascist or Nazi justice you want. There's no point in going to a court. It is justice. God's justice. This is why when God is divorced from the judges and the courts, you inescapably and inevitably have injustice. Justice is more than the victory of the most powerful or the most popular party. Justice is more than the triumph of a party, a caste, or a class, of the rich or of the poor. It cannot represent a man's perspective. If it does not re represent God and his law, then it is injustice. Justice is the righteousness of God as expressed as law. This is why in every society that is godless, that goes against God and his word, that denies the law of God as it is given in Scripture, inevitably has discontent. represents injustice. This is as true of the United States as it is true of the Soviet Union. The courts then represent the establishment of Washington or of Moscow or of London or of Paris or Berlin or what have you. They do not represent the absolute and sovereign God. And if they do not, they are unjust. And it's simply a question of how far have they traveled on the road towards total humanism, total injustice. The difference today between the courts of the Soviet Union and the courts of the United States is not of kind, but of degree. They are both humanistic courts. They both deny the law of God. In the Soviet Union, there is total denial. In the United States, there is progressive denial. It is a difference of degree, not of kind. Then forth, we must say in terms of scripture that the election or selection of judges is not the real issue. It is not the real issue. It is not the thing that determines whether a judge is a good or a bad judge. In the United States today, the state county and municipal judges are elected by and large. Federal judges are selected. There isn't a nickel's worth of difference between them. You can find a very low standard in federal courts, say on the Supreme Court, 
and a very low standard on state court. Our state Supreme Court is not a nickel's worth of difference between them. It is not the method of selection. Voting doesn't make a thing right. Both methods have good and bad results depending on the time. The fault is not in the method but in the religious standards of the day. If a people have no true standard of law, if they do not derive their standard of law from the law word of God, then whether they elect judges or elect them, it isn't going to make any difference. The scripture says, like people, like priests. In other words, the officials reflect the sins and the depravity of the people, their lack of faith. This is what our judges reflect today. They have no standards. There are exceptions, but by and large they are a fearful group of men, men to be afraid of. Because they represent the evil of the man on the street with power. Now in Israel, the purpose of the course was clearly stated by Moses and by Jethro in Exodus 18, 13 to 26. And then by Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 19, 4 to 7. Here you have the standard of God according to his law for justice. Jehoshaphat said to the justice, Take heed what for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord who is with you in judgment. The judge, therefore, is not the representative of the people, but of God. And it is the epitome of evil when the judge represents the people. The contrast here is marked. Jehoshaphat, as he recalled the people to the Lord. This is, incidentally, the chapter that tells us about Jehoshaphat's revival. We'll come to that in a moment. He declared that instead of representing the people, that was what they had to have a revival to save them from. It had to represent God. The trouble with most churches today is that they represent the people. They are democracies, not a monarchy. The church is a monarchy with Jesus Christ, not the minister nor the board, as the head. The court, however the judge is elected or elected, must be a monarchistic institution representing Christ the King or they represent injustice. Now this is the word of God. I stated a moment ago that Jehoshaphat 
revival is described in this chapter. This is an important point. Every revival, every reformation in Israel involves in part a return to the prophetic nature of the civil office. A prophet, in the basic and primary sense, is one who speaks for God. Secondarily, he is often one who foretells the future for God. Now, every minister of the church is called to be a prophet of God, one who speaks for God and one who foretells the future because he can say, and basic prophecy is the wages of sin or death, the soul of sin as it shall die, the nation that departs from the Lord shall face the judgment of the Lord. The law of God gives us the basis for prediction. Now, every judge, every civil magistrate is, according to St. Paul in Romans 13, 1-4, a minister of God. The church has the ministry of grace, the state, and especially the court, the ministry of justice. And therefore, the judge must be a prophet of God. He must speak for God, and he must do precisely what his Hoshaphat said. He judged not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore, now let the fear of the Lord be upon you, take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respective persons, nor taking it. Every reformation, every revival in Israel involves a revival in large measure of the judges as is sufficient. A recalling of the people and the priests, of the people and the judge, to the law word of God. And it was in terms of what Israel had done and what Jehoshaphat had done that the Reformation was born. This is something that we're not told today in the churches. We're told that the Reformation of Luther and Calvin was a church Reformation and that what Cranmer did in England and his successors was a church Reformation. But they spoke not only to the church but to the state. Luther to the Elector, Calvin to the Council of Geneva and his institute, incidentally, were dedicated to the King of France, summoning him to reform himself and his judges with God and Cranmer the King his successors to King Edward VI when the Reformation in England really took place in the prayer book was established and 
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy word. We call us our God unto thee, and grant that we have a true reformation, a true revival in church, state, school, and every area of life, that every dominion, every tongue, every thing shall achieve. Bow unto thee and swear unto thee, and acknowledge thee to be the God and the Lord. Jesus, our Father, for the reestablishing of thy sovereignty in our lives, in our domain, and in every area of life, unto the end of the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson, first of all? Yes. Which countries? I didn't know. Asia, yes. Right. Well, <clears throat> let's take China as it was before the Marxist Revolution. It had at least 1,500 years, probably closer to 2,000 years, of humanism, in which there was no absolute standard. What, therefore, was their concept of justice? Once, a few months ago, I cited an illustration that I uh, was told by a missionary. Remember, perhaps, that illustration of the missionary who, living in a small community in rural China, had two cows. His Chinese neighbor had one cow, a very sickly, diseased cow. And he and the neighbor, his son and the neighbor's son were outside playing, and they picked up pebbles, and they threw them at the neighbor's cow. They didn't bother the cow, he didn't even bother to stop chewing grass, but later in the day he died, not unexpectedly, he was very sick and thoroughly diseased. So, the Chinese neighbor filed suit in the Chinese court against the missionary, and the missionary lost. And when the judgment was rendered, he complained. And he said, everybody knew you can, could tell that cow was sick, it was deceased, it was going to die. Those little pebbles my boy threw couldn't have hurt the cow. Where's the justice in all this? And they said, but our decision is justice. You have two cows and you have none. So now you each have a cow. Pure humanism, you see. Now what chance did you have in a court like that? Justice means a humanistic consideration. And of course, with Marxism, it's no different. Now, this has been 
the law in Asia, surely human existence. It's no wonder they are more congenial to Marxism, even though they don't like it when it abuses them, than they are to anything that Christianity has to offer. And this is why Judaism and progressivism were so popular in Asia and in China, especially prior to the revolution. After all, pragmatism was no different than their philosophy of totality. Yes, a very interesting observation. Why has Chinese civilization lasted the last 2,000 years when it's been relativistic? And the answer to that is it has not. It has been conquered over and over and over again by outsiders. Because when you are humanistic, you have no standard of value to give you a concept of law or of progress. So, it's been just a fat prize for one invader after another to enter in and overthrow them and take over. Then in three or four generations, the invaders, whether it was Kubla Khan, the Mongols, uh, Genghis Khan, Kubla Khan, the Mongols, or the Manchus, the last conquerors, they, in turn, are overthrown because once they imbibe this philosophy of China, they themselves become stagnant and dead. So the history of China has been a history of successive conquests by all the border people. Then the border peoples, not having this radical relativism, carry China forward to a new height. And by the time they abide the philosophy, they disintegrate and somebody else moves in. This is true of India too. In both these countries and in other countries as well, you have a long, long succession of invaders who've taken over, fallen under the sway of the prevailing relativism, and themselves subsequently been taken. Well, of course, the faster we move towards judgment, the faster we move towards deliverance. You see, judgment and, well, Salvation and judgment are different sides of the same thing. The supreme instance of judgment is the cross of Christ, which is the great instrument of salvation, God's appointed it. So judgment and salvation are different sides of the same thing. And the judgment of this evil generation is also our deliverance.
very good observation. The judges were, until not too long ago, representatives of God and his law. As late as the 1890s, the Supreme Court of the United States declared that this was a Christian nation and that Christianity was the common law of the land. The judges, therefore, represented that law. Now, of course, the judges are totally humanistic, but they still take the attitude that somehow they are representatives of God and nobody dare question them. So they've gotten holier than thou in the process of abandoning God and are bent on playing God, having denied God. Of course, uh, an ironic fact is they're still garbed as ministers of God. The black robe of the priest. You see, in the Middle Ages, to set forth the ministerial nature of both the teacher and of the judge, they both wore that. Today, when the judge is down, it's a relic of the fact that he once represented God. The Supreme Court is still always down local judges or not. But the Supreme Court is witnessing against itself. The judges come there with their robes indicating they are ministers of the word. But they are not. Every time anyone graduates from a college, he wears a cap and a gown, a gown signifying now he has attained a ministerial role to minister God's word in a particular area of life, and he laughs when he puts that on, because he does not. Yes. That, I don't think, is important. Whether he's elected or selected, if you have a godly nation and godly men in high places, you will, whether you elect them or select them, you will have godly judges. But if you have an ungodly people, it doesn't make any difference. And we haven't done any better by election or selection today in our court. Yes, the whole point of the jury system as it developed was this. The people of God, trained in the word of God, would be able to render judgment in terms of God's law, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. But today, you see, how can the people know the law? Statute laws without rhyme or reason, and so... Uh, the jury is useless, really. A jury system is a proper development of physical law, where people can know what God says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, and so on, and can judge in terms of it. But today, it may be obvious to judge and jury that the man is guilty. The real question is, does the crime fit with some statutes, it's mostly an interpretation of the law. 
Yes.
last Monday, there was an interesting item in the Herald Examiner in the answer line column, which is answers to questions that are raised by different people. And this one coming from R.P. in Los Angeles. A rather indignant and unhappy letter. I robbed the bank back in 1966 and was captured and Early this year, I was released and sent to a halfway house to receive help to rehabilitate. I found a job and started the savings account, which was one of the stipulations given me at the halfway house. Unfortunately, the bank that I was required to put my savings in was of the same banking thing that I had robbed. They found out that I had an account with them and took away my savings because not all of the robbery money was recovered. Is their action legal? According to a local bank, the action of your bank is legal. It is called the right of offset. When two parties have mutual claims against each other, the money you owed from the robbery and the money they owed you in their savings account, the claims are reduced to the lowest amount owed to each other. Obviously, you still owed more from the bank robbery than they owed you from your savings account. You had a debt you owed, so they collected it legally. As an example of a minor remainder of biblical law in our legal system. Now, the other item is not a very serious item, although it's real history, rather humorously presented. I don't know what it'll mean much to most of you unless you've grown up on a farm. And the title of this, because I think it's very interesting in view of the fact that a while back we were dealing with the law of men and women and their respective natures that God created them. The title of this is Why Men Took Over Milking. Now, as you know, the idea of a milk man or a dairy man is new. It used to be, through the centuries, a dairy maid and a milk maid. So there's been a major change in recent years, about the turn of the century and after. There's only one thing lower than a grave robber, and that's a man who would shoot the milk of cows. So stated the medieval farmer to his wife, trying his best to dust the job. Even today, milking cows is not every farmer's cup of tea. Incidentally, they use the term for the milking shed now, milk, milking parlors. In parlors, at but staring out across the Dakota cattle ranch. I wouldn't milk them if they were in the Waldorf Astoria. For countless ages, men saw to it that milking was women's chores, along with most of the other homely chores necessary for survival. That left men free to go to town and run for public office. But naturally, men still wanted to boss the job. The worst point of housewifery said a Mr. Markham in 1660 is to leave a cow half milk. Francis Glennon in 1867 was more hungry. Milking seems better fitted to females who are likely to be more gentle and clean. But in case they weren't, he had plenty of advice for them. Go to the cow stall at 7 o'clock in the morning. Douse the other well with cold water. Keep your hands and arms clean. 
Milky Cow Dry. You first, uh, 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 milky Cow Dry, as you suppose. Then begin again with the cow you first milk and drip them. Suffer no one to milk the cow but yourself. Can't you hear the men cheering? And have no gossiping in the milking stall. The Wonder Woman took to wearing bloomers and marching for equal rights. But likely as not, milkmaids would have gone on class in milking the cows, but not for machine. The first patent for milking machine was granted in 1859. It was a simple kitchen pump that removed air from a sealed pail and sucked the milk out, like the plunger on a beer cake in reverse. Women bent dutifully, but with sighs of relief at pumping, and the men stood around with hands in pockets, grinning at the machine and winking at the girls. There is no record of what the cow did, but I expect that you and I know. One day that kitchen pump broke, and the milkmaid, being a woman, could not fix it. So the man rushed to her aid, wanting to keep her bent to the task, or else she might have to do it. And from there on, man, the tinkerer, was hooked. The term dairy man came into existence. But it was a difficult transition. C.S. Plum admitted in 1900 that men disliked the milk cow, and so numerous machines have been invented by them. Most of these are foolish contrivances, and none are real successes. Men will continue to divide, however, and it is probable that at some time large herds will be built by machines. Back in 1895, when Tom Ganofsky, just a Kansas Indian, Modestus Cookman, invented the first coffee. But really, practical milkers didn't appear until after the turn of the century. When William Lawrence and Robert Kennedy of Scotland developed a mechanism for, for controlling pulsation, the first U.S. patent on a doubled chamber tip-top was granted in 1903. As long as women were tending the cows, milking three times a day was considered necessary by men. But when men tinkered their way into the dairy, they abruptly decided that twice a day was enough. And nearly every generation of dairymen today breed a few who try to milk only once a day. With men at the helm, other milking conditions improve too. Cows come to the milker instead of vice the versa. They stand on raised platforms because men have weaker backs than women. Pipelines rid the man of the job of carrying milk and heated parlors him from freezing to death when he's out there in the morning, as he does not have that extra layer of female fat under his skin. And what about those gentle, cleanly females whose very nature fitted them especially for milking cows? They are going to town and running for public office. Now, that's not only good humor, but there's a lot of history and a great deal of human nature in that. Well, let's bow our heads down for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you. This day and all day. Amen.